If you get a Bible, turn to the book of Amos. We're still there um, in the book of Amos, looking at several of the themes that emerged throughout that book. We've been there for the last four weeks. We're going to be there two more weeks after this one. Um, but this morning, I'll be in a variety of texts in the book of Amos. And so um, you don't necessarily need to land in one place, but just kind of find it and put your thumb there, and we'll flip back and forth between a few different passages. Um, the, the book of Amos is, is not necessarily one that you um, would want to preach or write on if you want to get popular or rich, okay? That's not, that's not where you go, um, but it is God's revelation to us as his people, a prophet from many centuries ago who speaks to very contemporary issues in his culture and ours. And so we've been working our way through that book together. And this morning, I, I want to preach a little bit backwards. And so what I mean by that is usually by the end of the message, I try to take you to the cross and to the gospel and to Christ. Uh, this morning, I'm going to start with that. Um, because what I hope it will do is soften our hearts uh, to the message this morning that we need to receive from God and frame up what, where we're headed as we talk about this issue of justice for the poor. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul um, as he's trying to uh, encourage the church at Corinth to make a contribution to the church at Jerusalem, those who were in need, says this about Jesus. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. He says of Jesus, who uh, owned all, all, all things, was the King of all creation, who emptied Himself of uh, of everything and impoverished himself uh, by coming to being, cl being clothed in flesh. Uh, he, he became poor, he, he says, so that you might become rich in him, that you might have the wealth of heaven at your fingertips, access and relationship to God. There might be spiritual riches in your life that would overflow in abundance. That Christ has done this for you, and so he's, do, he's, he's saying that to them to kind of loosen the purse strings on their pocketbooks so that they would give toward the church in Jerusalem who found themselves to be in financial, material, physical need. That God in Christ has met every one of your spiritual needs. And so church, give, give, give generously, he says. Uh, in his book uh, entitled... A Gospel Primer for Christians, Learning to See the Glories of God's Love. Milton Vincent writes these words. I want you to listen to what he says. Like nothing else could ever do, the gospel instills in me a heart for the downcast, the poverty-stricken, and those in need of physical mercies, especially when such persons are of the household of faith. When I see persons who are materially poor, I instantly feel a kinship with them, for they are physically what I was spiritually when my heart was closed to Christ. Perhaps some of them are in their condition because of sin, but he says, so was I. Perhaps they are unkind when I try to help them, but I too have been spiteful to God when he has sought to help me. Perhaps they are thankless and even abuse the kindness I show them. But how many times have I been thankless and used what God has given me to serve selfish ends? Perhaps a poverty-stricken person will be blessed and changed as a result of some kindness I show them. If so, God be praised for His grace through me. But if the person walks away unchanged by my kindness, then I still rejoice over the opportunity to love as God loves. Perhaps the person will repent in time, but for now, my heart 
is chastened and my heart is made wiser by the tangible depiction of what I myself have done to God on numerous occasions. He says, the gospel reminds me daily of the spiritual poverty into which I was born and also of the staggering generosity of Christ towards me. Such reminders instill in me both a felt connection to the poor and a desire to show them the same generosity that has been lavished on me. When ministering to the poor with these motivations, I not only preach the gospel to them through word and deed, but I reenact the gospel to my own benefit as well. See, when a society or a people shake themselves loose from the anchor of God's word, uh, as we've seen in the book of Amos, there's a, a cascading tidal wave of injustice that sweeps over the land and through the lives of the people who reside there. And it washes over every aspect of life. And while there may still be a great deal of religious activity that's occurring around them, or even that they are participating in, it is hollow and empty. Because God's stomach is turned, he says. I despise your feasts. I despise your festivals. I hate your assemblies. Whenever there is no righteousness that flows out of, in, into your life on account of it. That is primarily the message of the book of Amos and one that modern America needs to hear as well and churches in America need as well as one commentator put it he wrote about the religious activity in Amos's day listen to what he says he says they treated the ceremonies and festivals and feasts and rituals as an end in themselves done in and for the inherent automatic benefits achieved by the ceremonial act and they divorced them from their God-intended context in a life of moral obedience, righteous principle, and just conduct. As a result, he says, sincerity overrode theology. And listen to what he means by that. He says, in the interest of what they would like God to be, they modified the revealed teaching of what He in Himself is. And their ceremony obscured ethics. He says that religion was void of both creed, belief, and conduct, be, right behavior. It did not rise from what, who God is, nor did it take account of what man is. It lived alone by principle of individual self-pleasing. In other words, what has been my best interest, what will produce the most satisfactory life for me, that's what I'm aiming for and then I construct a God in that image that will support my views of what life is supposed to look like or what I want life to look like, what I desire out of life. So I will edit my creed to see God that way and I will not take into account my fellow man. He says that's exactly what's going on in Amos' day and it's a scathing rebuke to the culture of his day and ours. And ours. And God raises up Amos to call the people back to the marriage of creed and conduct. To right belief and right behavior. Right principle and right practice. By confronting the injustices in their culture. And over and over and over again, Amos drives at the injustices in his day and time. And calls the people back to the demonstration of justice. And what we said a few weeks ago was this, that justice is 
in the prophets is the right behavior towards others whereby they taste or experience what is good and pleasant. And God confronts the injustice and calls the people back to justice over and over and over again in their horizontal relationship. He calls them to publicly display in their relationships with others this personal righteousness that they now have in relationship to God that God has given and graced and granted to them. There should be a public display. It should overflow and run out into the streets and out into their lives and out into their conduct and out into their businesses and out into their vocations and out into every facet or aspect of their life. It should roll out there. In fact, there's a play on words in Amos chapter 5. In verse 24, we read this text. It says, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But if you go further back up into Amos chapter 5, in verses 4 to 5, Amos says this, For thus says the Lord of the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal. We looked at this text a couple of weeks ago when we talked about true worshipers. Because one of the sacred places that the people of Israel would go in their day to participate in solemn assemblies and festivals and feasts was Gilgal. Gilgal had a, a spiritual significance for the people because it was the first place they came to when they crossed the Jordan River under Joshua's leadership. It's the place where they set up 12 stones to commemorate God's miraculous crossing of the Jordan and to remember all that he had done on their behalf as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. It was also the place where they ate of the fruit of the land for the first time because the manna stopped falling from heaven. And so they had crops and a harvest and they ate and enjoyed that there, but it was also the place where all the males were circumcised. That was a party, I can imagine. Right? All the males get circumcised there at Gilgal. Right? And in Joshua chapter 5, verse 9, God says to the people of Israel, He says, Today... Or to, to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the Hebrew word Gilgal and the root word roll for the verb roll back in verse 24, they share the same root word. And here's the picture. The people were, the pilgrims and worshipers, they were rolling into Gilgal Year after year, month after month for celebrations, feasts, festivals, and assemblies. They were rolling in to remember that God had rolled away the shame and reproach that they bore as slaves in Israel or, or, or in Egypt. And that God had brought them out to the land of promise that He had sworn to their fathers. And yet there was no justice rolling out of Gilgal. There was no justice rolling out of their celebrations. There was no horizontal conduct rolling out of their feasts and assemblies and festivals. They were rolling into Gilgal, but there was no justice rolling out of their worship, their public assemblies. And so God calls them on that issue. Rather, because what was rolling out into the public spheres of their lives was rather injustice. So that whenever people tasted and experienced interactions with them, it was not something that was pleasant, but something that was bitter. In fact, Amos uses that language elsewhere, and we'll see it here in a moment. And listen, church, in Amos' day and in ours, 
there's perhaps no greater expression of injustice than the way in which the marginalized and the poor are treated. The way in which they're viewed and the way in which they're valued. There's perhaps no greater expression of injustice. See, a few weeks ago, Stanley preached a message out of Amos on materialism. And if you were here or you listened to the podcast, maybe you remember he defined materialism in this way, that it's an excessive concern for self and stuff. Right? An over-concern for self and stuff. And when you read about that over-excessive concern for self and stuff in the book of Amos, what you see is a culture is formed by that concern that has an addiction to luxury. Right? Not just basic daily needs any longer, but an addiction to luxury. But on the, other, on the other side of that coin of addiction to luxury is this, the oppression of humanity. Anytime you have a culture that has excessive concern for self and stuff and is addicted to comfort, is addicted to indulgence, is addicted to luxury, the other side of that coin is the oppression of humanity. As the poor are marginalized and mistreated and abused. And Amos calls the, the people of his day to justice towards the poor. And we as well in our contemporary culture need to hear his call. Last week was a heavy message. This week is no different. Next week will be the same. Okay? I, I, I'm just, just preaching the word. Okay? Working through the book of Amos. I get it. So let's, let's consider this issue of injustice towards the poor and how we might work for justice for them. Injustice towards the poor is, listen church, first of all, it's multifaceted. It is multifaceted. In the book of Amos, you see it referred to on multiple occasions, but perhaps the first and most uh, kind of outlining way you see it in the book of Amos is in Amos chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. We saw, and eight even, but we saw last week the, the middle part of verse seven. I want to show you a couple of other things from that verse, those verses this morning. Look at how it's described in 2.6-7. to seven. He says, the poor, those who are needy, they're bought and sold like a commodity. They sell the righteous for a pair of sandals, right? There's, there, there's, there's, there's just, they're, they're, they're considered a, a commodity. They would be bought and sold as property. In addition, in 2.7, you see the poor are robbed of basic human dignity. Their heads are trampled into the dust of the earth. Right? They're, they're treated as if, as if they're dirt. That's what, the, that's what the expression is trying to say. They're treated as if they're worth nothing to no one other than to be bought and sold as servants or slaves. Justice was perverted as they were robbed of their meager possessions. They were taken, their, their cloaks and coats were taken by those who were wealthy. They were excised fines and taxes on perhaps debts that they owed. And they took them and sold them into slavery on account of the cost of a pair of flip-flops. Very minuscule debts that they would owe. They would excise the greatest fines and taxes. And the wealthy would continue to get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier on the backs of those who continue to be impoverished and robbed of their dignity. They were also robbed of justice in the legal realm as well. See, Amos' day was much like our day. Where you were better off to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. That was the culture in which they lived. And it oppressed, it was so, it was multifaceted. There was all kinds of expression of this injustice legally, financially, relationally in the lives of those who were poor. 
In fact, it was so pervasive that it became normalized in culture and no one even batted an eye. And listen, when injustice is normalized in a culture, because just like Stanley said a couple of weeks ago, there may be some of us who we just live and swim and breathe in this culture. And so we don't know anything different until the Bible comes to confront us on these issues. But when justice is normalized in a culture, the, the after effect or the result is this, that it poisons a culture. It poisons a people. Injustice will always have that effect. It turns what is sweet into what should be sweet into what is bitter. And this cycles of injustice, they inject poisonous attitudes and actions into the hearts of people. In Amos chapter 6, in verses 12 to 14, Amos addresses this very issue through a series of rhetorical questions. Listen to what he asks the people. He says in verse 12, Do horses run on rocks? Or does, does one plow there with oxen? In other words, does a horse scale a rock face? Do you just tell the horse, right, giddy up and click your heels and he just runs up a rock face? No, that's foolish, isn't it? It, it goes against the natural order, doesn't it? Or do you plow the side of a mountain with a, with a, with a yoke of oxen? To plant crops there. No, you don't do that. It would be foolish. It would be destructive. It would destroy the plow, destroy the ox. It might destroy you. Right? It goes against the natural order. He says you can't do either of these two things. Those rhetorical questions. The answer is no. Of course you can't do that. Of course a horse can't scale a rock face. You don't plow the side of a mountain with oxen. Right? That would be a foolish attempt to reverse the physical order. But he says, he goes on to say, but you have reversed the moral order and no one thinks that it's foolish. No one finds it to be outside the ordinary. No one bats an eye. Listen to what he says. But you have turned justice into poison, verse 12, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. In other words, from the northern end of the land to the southern end of the land, you will be oppressed by another nation who will come in to rule you in the same way that you've oppressed others, the downtrodden, the poor, in the same way that you have turned justice into wormwood. Wormwood was was the bitter root of a plant, and it, it had a bitter, bitter taste to it. And he says, you've taken something that should be sweet and you've made it bitter. you made it poisonous as it's, a, as it's become normalized within your culture. It has poisoned a people. See, over time, when injustice is not confronted in a culture, when injustice is not, is not addressed in a culture, it goes, the, 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 it, a culture turns from care and concern from the marginalized and poor into a disdain and disgust of them. Where they're not viewed or valued as human beings. They're robbed of basic human dignity. And it, it has a way of polluting the ecosystem of humanity in a culture. When the poor are devalued, when they're not seen as image bearers of God, as those created to be a reflection of God in His world, not seen as individuals who have dignity or honor by virtue of creation in the image of God. 
It poisons a culture and it creates cycles. Listen, it creates cycles of destruction. In 2013, February, February 2013, there was an article in the Dallas Observer. It was called, entitled, The Ten Zip Codes that are at the heart of Dallas's astounding cradle-to-prison pipeline. Now listen, I, I'm not an economist, okay? So let me just go ahead and say, I don't, I, I'm a pastor, okay? So I do not think just giving people money is the solution to their problems. That's not what I'm saying. But I want you to know something. That there, is, there are cycles and patterns of generational affliction, that have risen out of impoverished communities. Listen, listen, listen to what this article talks, says. It's, it traces these cyclical effects of generational poverty on the schools in the 10 Dallas neighborhoods in these zip codes. These 10 Dallas zip codes have sent more than 3,100 prisoners into Texas state prisons. Those same 10 zip codes also have some of the lowest college-ready graduation rates in the state of Texas, in those 10 zip codes. I think, this, I think the statistics said 26% of the graduates, freshmen who moved on into college were actually prepared for the academic rigors of the college life. Mitchell Savage, executive director of Stand for Children's Dallas chapter, he just listened to what he said. He said, it's very important to remember that because these cycles are so entrenched and long-standing, this is so important, no single change can reverse these trends. No single change can reverse these trends. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying these cyclical patterns of generational issues that these neighborhoods are facing are so complex that you cannot just change one thing and then everything else falls into place. But there must be a holistic approach to engaging those whose lives have been wrecked by generational poverty. And again, I, I'm, I'm not a sociologist. I'm a pastor. All I know is this, is that we've, the church has got to begin to take more seriously the issues of the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed in our culture. We can no longer just write it off or make jokes about those who are less fortunate, fortunate, less graced by God. In fact, those 10 zip codes were all in the South Dallas area. An, an area that was stripped of much of its resources in the 1950s and the 1960s as families with wealth vacated those neighborhoods oftentimes listen church oftentimes because families of color were moving into them And much of the resources were diverted to the, the, the suburban realms as they continued to grow and expand, leaving a vacuum of resources in many of these neighborhoods, in many of these communities. 
And then we who benefit from the development of the suburban monstrosity that the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex is, oftentimes look back at those who are stuck in those cycles and generations of poverty because banks begin to then redline those neighborhoods and not give loans to families to begin to acquire wealth and build wealth in those neighborhoods because they couldn't own their own property because those neighborhoods were too high a risk. And so as, as homes are passed down from generation to generation and many families surrounding the Metroplex or in the suburban areas or in wealthy, wealthier areas of Dallas, and they build generational wealth through the owning and selling and deeding of homes to children. That cannot happen in some of these communities because these neighborhoods were redlined in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And you see those economic policies trickling down even to today where people are stuck in generational cycles of poverty. And many of us think, well, they could just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. When all the odds are stacked against them. And we celebrate stories of people who rise out of those kinds of odds. But they are more the anomaly than they are the norm. Listen, I for one know that I do not have the boots or the straps or the strength to pull myself up. But everything that I have is a gift of the grace of God. See, when injustice is normalized, it creates generational cycles. And there's no quick, easy fix. And oftentimes it rises out of pride and greed. This kind of injustice, it rises out of pride and greed. See, injustice is able to flourish in a culture characterized by self-importance and self-indulgence. Pride and greed. It's fertile soil for all kinds of injustice. Listen, in Amos chapter 8, in verses 4 to 6, listen to what Amos says to the people. He says, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat, right, the, the leftovers of the wheat. We're going to mix that in. And we're going to sell it with the grain. See, a culture that has shaken it loose from the moorings of God's word, from the anchor of God's word, what we see in Amos chapter 8 is that it values gain above God. It loves economic gain more than it loves God. I didn't make that up. It's right there in the book. Listen, listen to what he says again. You trample on the needy, bring the poor of the land to an end, and you say, when will the new moon and the Sabbath be over that we can go make more money? <laughs> right? During, when will the festivals and feasts come to an end so that we can go and, and, and engage in commerce again? Right? They were still going to the new moons, the new moon feasts and festivals to commemorate God bringing them out of Egypt. They were still observing the Sabbath dutifully in their culture. But listen, while they sat in church or the synagogue, their, their minds were thinking about how they would continue to make money and build wealth. 
Their, their, their mind's attention, their heart's affection were not centered upon God and the worship of God, but it was centered upon how they might gain economically. And oftentimes by stepping on those who were under-resourced, underprivileged, undervalued. Then listen, in a culture like ours that has even shaken itself loose from even a dutiful observance of Sabbath, <laughs> right? Where church attendance is like, because we, we, we live, listen, you know this as well as I do, we live in a community and in a culture with all sorts of disposable income. And so we can go to all kinds of places and do all kinds of things other than being with God's people, gathered under God's word and in worship of God on Sunday morning. And in a, in a culture that has shaken itself away, loose even from the dutiful observance of Sabbath. I'm not saying that's where we, we should be. We should be in a faithful observance of Sabbath, of rest, reflection, worship. But even a dutiful one, how much more so does our culture need to hear this? When we shake ourselves loose from the anchor of God's word, we value gain more than we do God. And when we, value, we shake ourselves from the loose of God's word, we value profit more than we do honesty and integrity. That's what was going on in Amos' day. Right? They would sell, they would, they would make the ephah small. The ephah was a measurement of grain that they would sell. And they would make the shekel big, the, the, the currency big and great. In other words, they would sell less than the standard for more than the standard. And in so doing, commit great injustices and wound people. In fact, what some archaeologists have found in one of the ancient Israelite cities and excavations they did around the 8th century, they found in these shops and businesses two weights for measurement, one for selling and one for buying. So whenever they bought something, they put one set of weights on the scale. And when they sold something, they put a different set of weights on the scale, always to benefit them. Because they were only looking out for their own self-interest. And their integrity they sacrificed on the altar of profit. See, this kind of injustice, it rises out of greed and pride. And so what is the appropriate response then? Amos says this in Amos 5, 14 and 15. He says, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Amos says, listen, the remedy to the injustice, the action that, that needs to be taken in his culture and in ours, I believe, is to establish justice in the gate. Now, what does that mean? The gate in the ancient Israelite culture was the place where the elders of the city would gather and they would sit to conduct the public affairs of the city. It was a place in which commerce and legal decisions were made. It was a place in which contracts were initiated and signed. They were awarded and people were also there legally sentenced for crimes. They would weigh out the legal decisions. The elders would gather and they would conduct the affairs of the city. It's like city council meetings and the judicial court, the municipal court, all tied up into one place where all the affairs of the city were transacted right there at the city gates. It was where public life took place. And Amos is saying this, justice should be established in the public life of the city, in the public life of the community in which you dwell, in which you live. And so what does that look like? 
What does it look like to have a land in which justice would roll like waters and it would, would, would be established in the gate? It'd be a society, listen church, lest you think that I'm advocating or the Bible's advocating for socialism, which that's not what we're saying, not what I'm saying. It was, it, there would be a society that still had distinctions within it, right? Because there would still be different vocations. They would still live in different areas. It wouldn't just be a flat society like socialism advocates or communism desires. That's not what we're talking about. It would still be a culture, a community, a society with distinctions, but without oppression. Because those two things are not the same thing. John Piper was a pastor and author for many years at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In 1982, okay, going back a ways, I was five years old, in 1982, preached a sermon called The Poor, the Land, and the Pride of Jacob. And I want, to, I want you to hear what he says as he envisions this society without oppression, that justice being established in the gate. He says, oh, to have a church full of people who do not care if they live in comfort, but who hate evil, love good, and devote themselves to establish justice in the gate. People who feel grief and indignation not just when their right to get rich is threatened, but also when children die of starvation and anyone dies without salvation. He goes on to say, what does it mean to have justice in the gate? No more exploitation. No more small print in the contracts. No more price-manipulating monopolies. No more Marie Antoinettes who say of the poor, let them eat cake. And no more Robin Hoods who steal from the rich. No more central socialist committees who hold a gun to your head and tell you how much of yours is really your neighbor's. And no more fat capitalistic cats who walk by Lazarus every day on their way to work off their latest five pounds of wine on their treadmills. No more false advertising. No more shoddy workmanship that's charged at excessive labor rates. When every wage is fair, every contract is plain, every agreement is kept, and everyone strives for the advancement of his fellow man, not just his own, and all to the glory of God, then justice will be established in the gate. He goes on in that sermon to say, it looks like those who work for rent control at City Hall, who lobby for that at City Hall, to provide a, a fair rent to those who are living perhaps at or underneath the threshold of poverty in their particular given area. They work for rent control at City Hall, but they're also laboring in evangelism for the heart of that landlord to turn evil men and their ways into righteousness and justice in their interactions with people. Both and, not either or. That's justice in the gate. And I thought through several things just in our particular context that it might look like for us or it might look like in our culture. And the first one is this. Is that might, establishing justice in the gate, I think, would look like the restoration of blighted neighborhoods without the gentrification of those blighted neighborhoods. 
I've always, I've always found it interesting um, back when I was on social media that I would always see people with posts about wells they were digging in Africa and babies they were adopting from Ethiopia and all this stuff they were doing in other parts of the world while they're eating at restaurants in trendy, millennial, gentrified neighborhoods that have driven all the poor out of those neighborhoods to produce boutiques and restaurants and set them in the middle of those impoverished areas to attract wealthy affluence down to the communities. That's gentrification. Gentrification is this, those of you who are wondering, is the process of renovation of deteriorated urban neighborhoods by means of the influx of more affluent residents. And what it does is it displaces the poor. It displaces those who, can, who, who maybe had a place to live, but now they're on the streets because they can no longer afford the rent because rent has risen so fast because property taxes rise so quickly. Listen, where are Christian real estate developers who have a vision not to gentrify a neighborhood but to restore it and create affordable housing in some of those historic impoverished neighborhoods for people who are in need? In addition, establishing justice in the gate might look like fair, legal, an unbiased treatment of individuals regardless of their socioeconomics. That we would advocate for, advocate for those who are mistreated. Establishing justice in the gate might look like giving a hand up and not just a hand out. Listen, some of you are probably familiar with books like When Helping Hurts or Toxic Charity. Because sometimes what people need is not just more stuff that you can give them. Right? There is a class of individuals in our culture called the working poor. The working poor oftentimes are working one, sometimes two, sometimes three jobs just to live at the poverty level. And sometimes the working poor don't just need an iPad or an iPhone, right? And they may even need more than a bag of groceries, which is helpful in the moment. But what they may need is training to move into other spheres of vocation, to move out of those cycles of poverty for those who have a desire for that. It's a part of establishing justice in the gate. It's being concerned about the welfare of others and not just myself. It might look like also refusing to hoard wealth but use wealth for the sake of others. And some of you are in the room, you're like, man, I'm not wealthy. Think again. Think again. Let me give you a few stats on that. If you make $50,000 as a family after taxes with two children in your home, get this, you're in the top 8.5% of income in the world. Like, I'm not, I'm not wealthy. If you make $70,000 as a family after taxes with three children in your home, you're in the top 6.5% of income in the world. And if you make $90,000 as a family after taxes with four children in your home, you're in the top 5.5% of income in the world you may not consider yourself wealthy in relation to the standards of Rockwall County or the eastern Dallas suburbs but in comparison to the world many of us in this room are in the top 10% of incomes and what would it look like for a church to begin to leverage and use their wealth for the sake of others rather than hoarding it and keeping it for themselves 
What if, we, what if we took seriously this call that the Bible gives to serve those who are poor, to serve those who are in need, not just through a bunch of handouts, but through some hands up, right? Help them move out of those cycles. What if we move towards the 40% of students in the school district north of us that come from rural poverty in real, meaningful, tangible ways? to tutor, to mentor, to offer coaching to families. Look, I know that economics is not the only issue at play here. I know there's fatherlessness in homes. I know there are issues, bigger moral issues at play, spiritual issues at play. But the Bible over and over and over again calls us to care for the poor. In fact, when Jesus initiates his public ministry, he opens a scroll to Isaiah and he says, I'm here to preach good news to the who? Poor. What would it look like, church? I don't have all the answers this morning. But I've got the word that tells us this is part of what we're supposed to be doing as a body, as people who would identify with Yahweh, with Jesus, with the God of the Bible, and say we are under his lordship and leadership. And what that means for some of us, and I'm going to close with this, what that means for some of us is this. I find it interesting that throughout the book of Amos, there's no place where Amos calls us to have a higher view of humanity. No place in the book of Amos where I've I've read that so far. If you find one, bring it to me. I'd love to see it. But God, on multiple occasions, when he confronts the people about their callousness towards those who were in need and towards the poor, he lifts their eyes off of others and he, he raises them to give them a higher view of God. See, what we need in order to have a higher view of humanity is a higher view of God. In Amos chapter 5, verses 6 to 9, it says, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He, and then listen, he, he said that again in chapter 6. And then he takes their eyes and he points them heavenward. And listen to what he says. He who made the Pleiades and the Orion, the constellations in the sky, and he set them in place as if they were marbles in his hands. And turns the deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night. The one who causes the sun to rise over the horizon and causes it to fall on the other side from the east to the west. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The one who creates evaporation that comes up from every body of water and rises to the clouds to once again fall and give water to the land. The Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon their fortress. He lifts their eyes to this big, grand, great God and says, this is the one who's calling you to justice. This is the one who's saying, mimic and model the way that I've treated you as you treat others. And then in Psalm 8, we read this. This verse struck me this week as I was preparing for this message 
He says, when I look up at your heavens, the Pleiades and the Orion, the atmosphere and the sky, the seas and the land, the rain, all the sun and its rising and the sun and its setting and the moon and everything that you have made. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him his dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Everything under the heavens God has put under the feet of man. Both the richest and the poorest. And God is mindful of them both. And if this God, if your God is the one who has hung the stars in the heavens and causes life to burst forth and teem across the earth and puts everything under the feet of His image bearers, rich and poor, and He is mindful of us above all other creation, if we have this big God as our God, then we would be mindful of the richest and the poorest and move towards them in their need. Will we be a church that does that? Will we be a people that does that? Will you be a person who does that? Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we are humbled by your word. We're humbled by your grace, we're humbled by your gifts. And God, I am not naive enough to think that living in a culture of affluence where we are, that this message does not fall on some ears in a very distasteful way. And that it may even fall on some ears in a way that would prick our ears but not our hearts. And it may fall on some of our ears in a way that causes us to say, think this is a a great idea, but never to have any follow through. So Father, I pray in each of those instances for the one who finds your call to justice for the poor distasteful, God, I pray. I pray that what has been normalized as sweet in our culture, that you would turn it bitter in our mouths. And the bitter poison that has infected the pockets and cycles and generations of impoverished families and communities. That has been normalized for us, God, that you would turn it bitter in our mouths, that we might pursue justice. Father, for those whose ears may have been tickled but their hearts have not been touched, God, I pray that this would continue to resound in their minds and God, that it would sink into their hearts and that you might bring change by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would set us free from a pursuit of luxury and indulgence, from self-importance, from our pride and greed. 
that you might raise up a church and a people who would leverage, leverage the affluence with which you have blessed, that would leverage the finances that you have given to see individuals and perhaps even communities transformed. And God, would you move us to action? Give us a high view of who you are. And we might have a high view of those that you've created, rich and poor alike. And then we would know that your love is for all of them. And that we would work for their welfare and their well-being in the same way that you have done so for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.